All right, beloved, we have an opportunity here to finish yet another expository series that I did not think was going to be on the docket, but here we are. Um, so that's been definitely a grace that has been bestowed upon us to uh, finish the series. Uh, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord establishes his path. Um, you know, we had a handful of plans going into the summer and into the new year, and those are not what we thought they were going to be, and that's wonderful. Our old plans got blown up, and it's brought me great joy to continue teaching with this group and to uh, to continue to be here into the coming years. Um, this, I have learned last week, was in large part due to Hayden's praying, um, where he said, you know, Lord, if that's what is right for him to go to Louisville and stuff, then full send. Um, but if it's possible, absolutely blow it up. Um, so... In other words, God loves you, and Hayden has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, as we were approaching the text for this week, I had a little bit of difficulty sort of finding a unifying theme, like when I'm sort of trying to outline and trying to make applications. I had a little bit of difficulty finding what the unifying theme of the text is, but as I looked into it more, I, I really felt that this text was a really, really good springboard for our upcoming plan. Um, it does a nice, nice job to sort of launch us into the area that we want to go. Uh, oftentimes when you come to the end of a book, Romans, Second Peter, whatever, the last bit is sort of your throwaway comments. If you're teaching through it, it's like, say hi to this person and uh, continue in grace and don't be stupid and I'll see you when I see you. And that is, that's often how you approach it. You're just sort of on the wind down on a book. Um, but I, I really felt like as we, as I worked through this text that it was one of those times where we're finding that the Word of God is still profitable for us, and it still speaks to us in our situation, and even though it is a closing of a book, it is definitely not a throwaway, and it definitely still has value for us. So I've entitled this lesson, uh, Beloved, Be Diligent, and we're going to fill in that sentence, if you will, in a variety of different ways, um, but first allow me to make some brief general remarks regarding diligence the Greek word for diligence here, which is right there in that first line of the text for this week, has the idea of speed and fervor and eagerness. Um, and if I might trans translate into our vernacular just a little bit, basically Peter is saying you need to be hungry. Uh, Christians have a nasty propensity for becoming complacent, but Peter's dying words to the church are that we need to stay absolutely getting after it. Diligence um, is to keep going. Um, verse 18, you're going to see that we have to keep growing. Uh, there's really no middle ground on this point. And if you're in Fasantos, this is one of the things that you may have heard Mike say. You're either growing or you're dying. Uh, you're either moving forward on the path of life or you're slipping backwards. There's really no uh, middle ground on those. You're either... <laughs> You're either growing towards the Lord or you're moving away from the Lord. And I, I, used to, I used to really wonder, is there that middle ground where you're just sort of holding steady in life? And my experience has taught me, at least watching people, that that's not true. It usually is that people are either going one way or the other. Um, if you feel like you are sort of in one of those sliding back times, then I hope tonight is one of those times where you're going to say, let's put one foot in front of the other and let's take some steps to get back moving forward. You know, you have those times where it's two, two steps forward, one step back. Hopefully we can get back to those two steps forward 
Um, but if, if it is that you still feel like you're going forward, um, then perhaps you'll resonate me, with me in the other side of that token when it's like every single step forward that you take in holiness only reveals how unholy you still are and how much room for growth you still have. I mean this, guys. Every single move you make towards Jesus just reveals more and more and more areas in which you lack diligence for the king. It's not just a life of discouragement and depression because you don't feel like you're ever making it, but honestly, the less sinful I become, how much more glaring does our current sin shine out? And that's, I think that's part of the process of growing in holiness is you don't even know what you don't know when you're not very far progressed and the more you learn about how you should live, the more you see how your life doesn't live up to that. But hopefully you have had some of those moments where you're, I don't, I don't want to say on the mountaintop, but maybe it's a slope upward where you feel like you're, you're really genuinely living for the Lord and that's a really wonderful feeling. Um, and you, and I hope that you want to live on that plane all the time. And some, so some sense, I hope it is a little bit frustrating when you, aren't living um, in that stratosphere at all times. Um, and yet, you know, it's not always, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that we are at our peak and at our best at every moment. I think that's an unfair expectation, but hopefully tonight can be a little step towards, you know, just kicking that stone down the road a little bit further, uh, one one day at a time. And I, you know, I, I wrote that kicking the stone down the road analogy and I just, I think it's such a guy thing, but you know when you when you miss the stone that you've been kicking down the road, and you're like saying goodbye to an old friend as you've missed that stone that you've been kicking, uh, and you're not, but you know you enjoy kicking that stone. This is hopefully we don't miss our kick of the stone and that we actually keep moving down the road. Um, but the false teachers have been uh, sort of offering freedom to the false teachers. That's where we've been. They are saying like. Hey, if you want to be free, then you can be lax. Okay, you can relax in your morals. You can relax in your doctrine. If you'll just indulge a little bit, you'll experience true freedom. Um, but Peter is offering to us an entirely different way. He is saying, be diligent to Jesus and you'll experience true freedom. Diligence and discipline don't make you less free. They make you more free. And the easy road that offers freedom actually leads to bondage and the hard road that offers diligence actually leads to freedom and so Peter's really going to emphasize that narrow path if you will in, in this text uh, so let's begin in verse 14 I think Joanna's handed these out already um, verse 14 uh, this is our first one beloved be diligent to be found without spot or blemish therefore beloved since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So Peter's looking back, obviously, to the past verses, and he's saying that we are waiting on a new heavens and a new earth. And we talked about that at length. Uh, for a little bit of a literature note here, you'll notice that he's forming an inclusio. Anyone know in literature what an inclusio is? It's an inclusion. Okay, basically, he's making... He's He's tying it up all nice with a bow, okay? He, he makes comments here regarding uh, uh, diligence, um, which is the same word that we found all the way back in chapter one, where he's saying, be diligent to do, and then he lists out all those virtues. So he's really kind of, in, in a sense of literature, he's tying everything up here. He's making it parallel and 
pretty from a literature perspective. Um, not only that, but going back to chapter one again, notice his comments regarding knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're in the very first verses. But then uh, Peter talks about how Christians are to be found on that last day. He talks about how we're supposed to be found by the Lord Jesus when he returns. And instead of having a negative consequence where all things are found or revealed that we talked about last week, uh, Peter wants the beloved uh, to be found by Jesus in three, no, kind of really two specific ways. First, we're supposed to be without spot or blemish. Now, I'm going to do, do a couple more of these. It'll be a little bit older Koinonia style where I ask a couple more questions since we have a smaller group tonight. But any thoughts on where that language regarding uh, spot and blemish comes from? Okay. Yeah, uh, Old Testament sacrifices. Um, but that's Peter isn't alone in, in using this, um, and I would see this as a couplet. Sort of, it's not like without spot means one thing, without blemish means another. It's sort of a technical phrase that looks back to the Old Testament sacrifices. Uh, we see this in First Peter one nineteen, and then Exodus twelve five, um, though other places in the Old Testament as well, certainly. First uh, Peter one nineteen, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. And then uh, Exodus as well. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. He may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So going back to that Exodus time, they were supposed to have a lamb and they were supposed to keep it as a pet basically so that they would grow fond of it and then they would have to kill that pet and then they were going to apply that um, blood to the uh, to the doorpost and there would be the Passover where divine judgment would pass over them. And so this is sort of a uh, miniature day of the Lord as we talked about. This is God's judgment on Egypt which prefigures the final judgment. And so what Peter is doing here is drawing this parallel to say that Jesus is our new covenant, Passover lamb, uh, that keeps us safe during eschatological judgment. And we are involved in a new exodus, not from Egypt, but from bondage to sin and captivity to Satan. And we are protected from that judgment by Jesus's blood on the doorpost of our lives. And now, because we are unified with Christ, we must imitate Christ in that. And we must be spotless like Christ. Be holy as I am holy. Um, but this is not only about sin. Notice the, notice the comments there. It's not just spot and blemish. That's why I said it's kind of three, but it's really two. It's, you have spot and blemish, and then you have peace. Um, I would lean towards, commentators go different ways on this, but I would lean towards this being interpersonal peace. I don't think the New Testament really ever portrays Christians as in a state of not having peace with God. Christ bought us grace and peace. That's why Paul opens his letters in that way, as he's saying, grace and peace to you. You exist in a state of grace and peace. And so I would understand this to be peace uh, between believers. Um, the, question, um, the question I want to ask you guys is, what are you, just sort of on the practical application, I'm throwing this out to you guys again since we have a little smaller group, but uh, what are some of the things that you feel like just in general, and you know, if, if you want to speak personally, that's fine. You don't have to. I understand that that can be too personal, but uh, what are some things that you guys feel like um, are, are a cause for it to be difficult to maintain peace with other believers? Uh, what, what sort of things are difficult to have peace with other believers in this group, a church, you can be third person if you like. First, yeah. um, the first two things that pop to my mind are disagreeing about secondary issues, mm 
Um, and then when you have passions in different areas of life, so you feel like they should be pulling one direction when they are going towards something else. So if I may sort of generalize on that, things that should be matters of opinion, but people are taking as dogmatic, central, yeah. yeah. I think that's I think that's really valid. How many, I mean, whether it's doctrinal or interest, how many of you have seen a lot of fights over things that should be secondary but aren't? Yeah, I think I think so too. What's up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that that's there's a great deal of wisdom I think in growing in peace to know what battles to fight and what to say that's not my hill to die on today. Um, other things that tend to cause disunity or lack of peace in your guys' experience. Yeah, over, over what sort of things? For me, it's usually seeing that other people seem to have it together. Mm -hmm. So I kind of go in there really worshiping God with what they do mm -hmm. and everything that they have. So over here, just kind of struggling. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's really valid. Anything else? This isn't the right word for it, but like unopposed sin. Okay. Uh, unopposed is the right word. Ela elaborate, like, yeah. Um, on opos, maybe? Yeah. Um, like, when you're not a good fellow brother and you don't go to your brother when they are sinning and try to rebuke them, but you just let it fester inside, I suppose. Yeah. Which is also hypocrisy, if you want to more generalize. That's where a lot of church hurt comes from, too. Yeah. Um, I think all of these are things that make it difficult uh, to have peace with people and it's something that we have to be really diligent in. Um, I know that in the past few weeks I've been hammering on peace and love and so I'm not going to go down that same rabbit hole again this week. I'm going to take a little bit different direction and say that if you feel like you are achieving that, um, then maintaining that peace that you feel like you have won and that love that you have accomplished with people takes a lot of diligence. It's not just a sort of a like, um, unfortunately, it's not just one of these things that you do one and done. It's something that you're going to have to wake up every single day and be diligent to continue having peace with people that you aren't naturally going to be at peace with. And so it's not, um, it's not a matter of a one-off effort. It really is something that should fit within this category of diligence uh, that, that Peter is putting out to us. Yeah. Can I provide an analogy for that? I would love to have an analogy for that. You don't get fit by learning to ride a bike. You get fit mm -hmm. by riding the bike. Yeah, it's actually really apt, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it takes so much diligence to run, uh, to bike, to uh, to be gracious and kind towards not only our spiritual families, but also our physical families and the overlap of spiritual and physical families for those of us that grew up in a Christian home. It's a, it's a difficult uh, place to be. All right, let's go ahead and move on to verse 15. We're going to be in our second section, uh, beloved, be diligent uh, to count God's patience as a time of or for salvation. And count the patience of our Lord and Savior as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Um, in the past weeks, we've answered the question, why the delay? Why is Jesus taking so much time to come back? And I would say last week, if anything, we or in the past couple weeks, we've addressed this more from an apologetic point of view. Peter's like, okay, the false teacher is saying he's not coming back. We got to defend our, our ground on this. Um, but now we see Peter, and we'll you use it this way as well. It's more of a call to action in this case. It's not so much like an apologetics issue, but it's a because of this, we should be doing something. And 
the the point is that God is delaying for the elect. And if God is delaying for the repentance of the elect, uh, then we must likewise remember that us as Christians are the the vessels that are most frequently used by God to call other people to repentance and to salvation. In other words, if the first one was beloved, be diligent towards your fellow Christians, the second one is beloved, be diligent toward unbelievers. It may just be my parents, but okay. Um, we must uh, we must then realize that we should be like Paul. Uh, Paul was ready for the return of the Lord Jesus at any time. If you read his writings, he had an expectation of that. And he sort of considered himself in this eschatological role of witnessing. Um, and God is delaying for who knows how long, and we must get the gospel out to the nations. That's sort of Paul's view, is I'm an eschatological prophet. Let's ride. Um, Broncos country, let's ride. I don't know if you, none of you are going to get that. That's really sad. Um, but I feel, you, you got it? Russell Wilson, man, Broncos country. Let's ride. Um, what a ride that has been, by the way. But uh, I, feel, I, feel especially, I feel especially unqualified to really give any moral imperative on evangelism and mission since I would not consider it a strong suit. Uh, by any point, and so perhaps if I can't really con convict you guys, then I can at least share the conviction that I had uh, when I went through this text, and uh, you know how how crummy I felt, uh, and hopefully share that with you guys just a little bit. Um, but I just I just want to remind you that um, Adam, let's go back to Adam. We have the garden, which is a temple, and. And the, the goal of that is Adam was supposed to take, basically, the presence of God to the ends of the earth. Okay? How'd that go? It didn't really go that well. And now we have Israel, or rather we had Israel, and, you know, they're supposed to be the light to the nations. They are a corporate Adam. They're supposed to take the presence of God to, and the temple to the ends of the earth. How'd it go for Israel? Not real hot. Um you know, just dove into sin consistently. And then the perfect Israel, the true Israel, the better Adam comes, Christ, and he is the true presence of God. He is the embodiment of the temple. He is the light to the world. And he is successful in building his temple. The, the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's the point. Um, and so they both failed, Adam and Israel, in in taking the gospel to the nations. But we are have this opportunity to participate with Christ by virtue of our union with him. We are ambassadors for Christ and a piece of the eschatological temple of God. And so what I, what I noticed then is that we have to ask um, ourselves as we lean into what Peter is saying, that God is delaying for the end of the world, for the repentance of his people, I want to ask you, and I ask myself this question, uh, do I want the new heavens and the new earth, or do I want to sit on my bum without evangelizing more? Which one of those two do I want? If evangelizing and the repentance of God's people is the means that God has ordained for the new heavens and new earth to come, then I'm presented with a choice. Either I can be lazy, or I can do my part to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. Stated differently, do we love the appearing of the Lord Jesus or do we love our comfort zone more? I hope you can see how convicting this is because as much as we want to say that we're better than Adam and we're better than Israel, not only would we probably fail if we are, were in a similar situation to them, if we are not taking the gospel to the nations and to our neighbors, um, 
I would contend that we fail in the same way currently as Adam and Israel failed, which is devastatingly convicting when you read the New Testament's condemnation of Adam and uh, how, how, how bad it went for Israel. Uh, you know, you really don't ever want to see yourself in a boat with Adam and Israel on uh, not taking the gospel to the nations. And I think, I think I find myself in that boat way too much. And so if we're going to be united with a Christ who is the light to the nations, then we, we really need to do our part in building that eschatological temple of God. I hope that someday, um, you know, I can actually live out my human purpose and fulfill the Genesis mandate to subdue creation. Um, but for us, yes, that does look like reproducing, and that's fine, and I don't mind that application. But within the Great Commission, the Genesis mandate's taken on a whole new level. It's now spiritual, and you you have new enemies to face, and they're demonic powers and new people to conquer and to win for the gospel of Christ. And um, I hope that someday I will actually be, I would even contend more fully expressing what it means to be human by fulfilling the Genesis and therefore great commission. Um, incredibly convicting on that point. Um, third, beloved, be diligent to avoid the distortion of scripture or in other words, uh, be diligent to the word of God. Verse 16. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. What a great verse. Um, <laughs> um, I, I want to start out by saying that uh, Paul's writings have been claimed here by Peter when he says the wisdom given to him by God. This is tantamount to saying that Peter views Paul's writings as inspired. Okay, he views Paul's writing as inspired. And furthermore, uh, this passage is incredibly helpful because it seems like at the time of the writing of 2 Peter, Paul's writings were already considered to be on par with the Old Testament scriptures. As a matter of fact, early Christians may have already been conceiving of scriptures in basically two parts, that you have the Old Testament canon and then you have these incipient little forms of a New Testament canon as well. The Old Testament uh, and the New Testament uh, are starting here. Uh, liberal scholars find this very difficult, though, uh, because they don't think that you could have a corpus of Pauline letters so early, right? If, if you have a whole collection of Paul's writings, then it couldn't have been you know, by the time that Peter was uh, basically on his death sentence. Welcome. We have a couple Hi. Franciscan nurses. Hello. Do you want a chair? Um, liberal scholars find this difficult, um, that there could already be this collection of Paul's writings. So if you'll allow me uh, the liberty of a little insightful technical journey, uh, turn over to Second Peter or Second Peter, Second Timothy four thirteen. Um, if you want to, if you trust that my copy of the ESV is the same as yours, you're welcome to let me do the reading for you. Wait, what verse? Second uh, Timothy four thirteen. I heard Second Peter four thirteen. I did say that at first. Um, when you come, this is Paul speaking. We just went through this text a couple weeks ago. Uh, when you come, bring the cloak I left with. Uh, Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. 
Um, what I want you to notice is that, uh, like Second Peter, we may have a distinction between, sort of a two-part uh, distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament here, with the Pauline corpus emerging directly from Paul himself. Uh, notice that we have two things. We have the books and we have the parchments. And for whatever reason, Paul distinguishes the two. Uh, most scholars would agree that when he says the books, the biblios, this is referring to the Old Testament. This is referring to scrolls of the Old Testament. Um, but the parchments is a little bit of an interesting word. It's a Latin word that has been borrowed in. And um, and really, uh, there. so you have parchments. That's cool. What does that mean? The parchments then in extra biblical writings um, have been attributed to be a, a codex or a codice or codices. How many of you are familiar with what a codex is? Okay. A codex, some people actually thought that Christians invented uh, codices. That's how popular they were in the early church. Codices are basically pre precursors to our modern books. Uh, papyrus and stuff, you were going to write on scrolls of animal skins and stuff, but Codices started to become popular, especially in Christian circles, um, because they wanted to have basically what we have. They wanted to have a copy of the Word of God right there in a little packet. And so they're just little um, books of papyrus or whatever else um, that, that you might want to, uh, what other, other materials that you would have used. So the question then, if extra-biblical writings are using this word for parchments in a reference to codices. The question is, why does Paul want these codices? What are, what's the point of these codices? And one of the big possibilities that's been set forth is that these were copies of Paul's own letters. Um, it was not unknown in the ancient world for an author to keep one copy of his letter and send out the other one. If you're sending out a meaningful letter across the Mediterranean in AD 60, you might want to have a backup copy. You know, it's like, you know, putting your USB in and downloading your files. Um, Paul, if Paul knows that his letters are inspired, you, you might think that this is a reasonable idea for him to continue on what a lot of people did in that time, which is to have a copy of your own letters. And so what this may be is basically Paul saying to Timothy, can you bring me my own personal library? Basically, bring me the books and bring me my parchments. Bring me my letters. This also might provide us a very good explanation for why we don't have books like, you know, 3 Corinthians and the letter to the Laodiceans. If Paul knew they weren't inspired, then he might not have kept them. You know, I don't keep every note that I ever write. And so when we have this, like, group of Pauline letters that are emerging in, in a text like 2 Peter, it, very it is very possible that the early church is getting this group of Paul's letters from none other than Paul himself. Paul very well have made his own Pauline corpus. And so this is one of those helpful uh, ways to answer how we could have a group of Paul's letters so early on. But it's also helpful to know why we may not have certain of Paul's letters while we have others. Uh, back to 2 Peter. That was, uh, that was a little excursus. Basically, Paul might be saying, bring the Old Testament and my beginnings of the New Testament. Um, but back to Second Peter, we, we have deep spiritual things that are hard to understand in Paul. And certainly I would think that we can resonate uh, with, with Peter. I, I, I like to joke that uh, Peter's just a fisherman. Paul's the academic of the bunch. And sometimes Peter and the rest of the squad is like, 
I don't even know what this guy's talking about. He's probably writing Hebrews right now, talking about angels. And, you know, why should women do this? Because of the angels. And we're supposed to know what that means. And Peter's like, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and so I like to make jokes about that. But I actually don't think that the context incredibly supports that. Uh, Peter doesn't say that Paul's writings are inaccessible for Christians. Uh, what he does say is that there is a group of people that do not have a good ability to discern what Paul's letters mean. And who does he say that about? Well, it's the false teachers. And why does he, uh, why does he say this? Um, basically, he gives two reasons. In context, it is because they are ignorant uh, and they are un, uh, unstable, uh, that they are not able to really understand what Paul is saying. Ignorant here means unlearned. Um, this, this is um, basically saying that people were potentially unlearned in the sense that they did not have a comprehensive understanding of broader Christian teaching. Uh, they didn't have enough training to properly interpret the difficult passages. Uh, they were unstable in the sense that they were not on solid footing and were persuadable then by false teachers. So what did they do with it? They twisted the scriptures. This word for twisted can also mean tortured, which sometimes, um, I mean, that's a, I would love to translate that, you know, not only you twisted it so bad that you're torturing that poor text. Um, I've talked to some of you about this, but I've actually wanted to have, this is too passive aggressive for me, or just honestly aggressive, but have a Bible that I take to churches that I just ardently disagree with. And when they're done preaching, tear the passage out of scripture, walk up and hand it to them and say, you ripped that con passage out of context so bad, I thought I'd just hand it to you. Um, but, you know, so <laughs> Peter is saying that the false teachers are twisting or torturing this poor text of Paul's into oblivion. But what, what did they do? So they twisted it. Um, there's debate over how they twisted it. Uh, some would suggest that Paul has a very imminent es eschatology, like Jesus is going to come back. That's what a lot of liberal scholars think, and some conservative probably. But um, basically the way that that could go then is Paul thinks Jesus is going to come back right now. Jesus hasn't come back right now, so uh, throw that part out. Jesus isn't coming back. That's one way it could go. I think what is entirely more likely is the classic way that Paul has been misunderstood by everyone ever in his day is that uh, Paul teaches a gospel of grace, uh, a gospel that doesn't depend on law. And so what do people want to do with that? Well, they want to say, well, it's not, it's by grace. It's not by works. And so I'm free from the law and I can live however I want to live because it's all about grace. Um, this rejection of law called antinomianism is likely in my estimation, what the issue was. Uh, they appealed to Paul basically to say that they could live however they wanted to because it was about grace and not by works. And I think that fits really well with the context of second Peter on the whole. So what can we learn from this? We, we know that the false teachers are ignorant and they're also unstable. Let's, let's try to be the opposite of that and talk about some ways that we could not be ignorant and not be unstable. Um, let's start with uh, the ignorant side. Uh, how do we become not ignorant and more stable? Uh, this means that you have a, if they didn't have a good grasp of systematic Christian teaching, this means that Christians should have a grasp of systematic theology and historical theology on the whole if we want to avoid the errors of the false teachers. In recent years, there has been an immense pushback in both academic and I would say even lay circles 
against systematic theology, confessional statements, and uh, categorizations as a whole. People don't like categories. We like sort of new ageism, like it's just out there and it's blended and you feel the vibes. You don't open that box of information and close that box of information. Uh, we're in our, in our era of philosophy, we're really against strong categorical thinking um, within theology, especially. And this is why you'll see that systematic theology is removed as schools go more liberal in seminaries is they don't have a place for systematizing beliefs. And the word doctrine itself has picked up some negative connotations. Um, but in reality, the word doctrine is just a statement of belief on a subject. It's, I mean, it's got this bad rap, but it's just saying, here's what we believe about this. So systematic theology and confessional statements summarize the Bible's teaching for us. Ironically, uh, there's been a lot of people who reject this because they just want to focus on the text, right? I don't care about systematics. I care. I just want to be biblical. That And that's admirable, right? I don't want to knock that too hard. Uh, but there are some pitfalls to that sort of belief as well. And I think Mu summarized this really well in his commentary on a different spot on Second Peter. Um, he, he sort of is having this fake dialogue with them. He says, All I want to do, they piously proclaim, is study the text and let it lead wherever it goes. Well and good, I respond. But do you believe the Bible is true? Of course, they say. Can the Bible be true if it contradicts itself? No. What happens then if your conclusion about one text contradict your conclusions about the other text? Then I must harmonize them, they assert. And how do you do that without a broad framework of biblical teaching to work from? In a word, systematic theology. I thought that was a really good way to say, yeah, you want to focus on the text. Well, if the text is true, then you can systematize it. Um, uh, not only is systematic theology important to avoid this ignorance that the false teachers had, but it, it's also important on the other side um, because historical theology is there to avoid instability. And that's how I would distinguish between the two. Systematics helps you think and not be ignorant. Historical theology helps you not be unstable. Um, historical theology distinguishes between that which is orthodox, heterodox, and heretical. Anyone want to take a stab at defining those for me? Okay, what's orthodoxy? We'll start there. It is the consistent position that the church has held for the last 2,000 years. Right. So, and even going beyond that, it can just be like, there's Protestant orthodoxy and there's now Catholic orthodoxy. It's sort of like a group of, this is what that group of people have always taught. Now, what's heterodox? And how is it different from heresy? You should learn the word heterodox so you don't just call people heretics all the time. Heterodox means you might not fall within the mainstream, but you're not going to hell for it. You know, it's like kind of a, that's not, that's not what everyone believes, but that's still within, if we draw lines in the sand, sand, you can still play in the sandbox of Christianity. Heresy is when you step outside the sandbox entirely. Okay. <laughs> Uh, you're not, you're playing, I don't know, what the kids don't play in it, mulch. You're playing in the mulch. You're not playing in the <laughs> anymore. 
Um, for let me provide a little example, maybe elucidate this a little more uh, more clearly. System systematic theology says that the Scripture teaches that Jesus is God. Historical theology says that to not deny the deity of Christ is a heretical, damnable position. That's the way I want you to distinguish these two. Uh, to in interpret difficult scriptural passages, then you have to know systematic theology or systematic Christian teaching on a point. Um, if you aren't sufficiently introduced to a, you know, a general overview of how Christians think on a certain point, then when you come across a difficult text, you, you might not know which direction to head, and you can make some bad conclusions off of one data point. If you don't have a bunch of data points in your mind, then you can go in a wrong direction really, really quickly. Um, but I, I just want to say, it is, um, it is, it is important, and don't be afraid to draw big picture conclusions from scripture. You'll get a lot of pushback on that if you if you try hard enough in our circles today, if you try to draw big picture conclusions from scripture. So don't shy away from it. Um, and also stick to the uh, hermeneutical principles, hermeneutics, the study of how to study scripture. Um, don't ever shy away from the idea of allowing scripture to interpret scripture. Use other scriptures to help guide your understanding. Allow the unclear passage to be interpreted in the light of the clear passage, and it'll help prevent you from going in a wrong direction as you want to teach. Um, as you interpret scripture then, have one eye on what the church has historically taught to help you prevent, to help prevent you from going off the rails. It doesn't mean that the church is infallible. Sometimes you might disagree with the church. That's, you know, that's, there are times for that. There are times where you should disagree. That's fine. Um, but keep one eye on it, because if you disagree with them at every point, Maybe you're the one, you know, like if, am I the drama? No, I couldn't be the drama. You know, like maybe if every time there's a disagreement between you and a point, maybe you're the problem. And so keep one eye on historical theology to see what it's saying about a topic and see if, if, um, if you're heading down the right path. Uh, so what's the other half, though? Uh, when we make systematic statements about what we come to in the text from Scripture, it's really easy to twist and torture the text into our own preferences. And this is, this is the danger of systematization. Um, there are a lot of paradoxes in Scripture, and it's really easy to become focused on one half of that paradox and unbalance yourself onto one or the other. And, and that can lead to damnable positions. Um, and, and Peter doesn't shy away from saying that. He's saying the false teachers twist passages to their own destruction. That is, they're, he's saying they're heretical, they're outside the bounds of the Christian faith. So within, within these paradoxes, we can really overweight one side or the other. And even setting doctrinal comments aside, when it comes to morality, how often have we seen the modern church twist and torture uh, passages of Scripture to meet its own desire of the season? Uh, if, you, if you want a little evidence, look no further than the exegetical gymnastics that the modern church is willing to jump through in order to justify its modern sexual ethic regarding uh, homosexuality and sex outside of marriage and stuff, you know, it is possible to, you know, make something say something if you want it to. Um, the balance there then is that we must be willing to be instructed in whole Bible systematic teachings, um, and yet we have to be very, very careful with our own bias. We can introduce bias um, when we move into systematization. This is the difference between a randomized control trial and a systematic uh, systematic review, right? You can introduce more bias the more you meta-analyze things, 
if you will. There's some problems with the origin of the phrase I'm about to use, um, but nevertheless, it's a good phrase. Just don't dig into it too hard. Uh, semper uh, ubique et, um, et um, omnibus, right? Okay, it's a really good phrase. It means always, everywhere, and by everyone. And the idea behind this is that we're supposed to believe what has always been believed by every, you know, especially in the early church, you had east and west, everywhere and by everyone. Um, this is to say that there are certain things that are generally accepted within the church overall for thousands of years now that you probably shouldn't go about rejecting, okay? That's probably not healthy for your soul. Um, and yet we must also maintain that scripture is our highest authority and it reigns over top of tradition. But that bias creep over time is, is easy. Just one little turn over time and you can be heading in a 180 degree direction. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay that, that sometimes tradition is wrong and sometimes you do need a reformation uh, to correct for that straying. But nevertheless, we must cherish whole Bible systematic teaching while minimizing the influence of our biases and our twisting and our interpretations of scripture. If the whole of scripture says something that you don't like, well, suck it up, buttercup. It says something you don't like and that's okay. And we have to be emotionally able to deal with that. Um, but Peter's readers know what the issue is in, 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 this, in this section. Um, and so he says, fourth point here, Beloved, be diligent to avoid being carried away into instability. In other words, be diligent about yourselves. Verse uh, 17. Peter, Peter's confident that he knows what the issue is in the church. He, he trusts that his readers are aware of what's going on, um, and we've covered that time and time again. But basically, Peter's message here is very, very simple. I've told you what the issue is. Now that you know about it, be careful so that you don't get sucked into it and become unstable. It's really not that deep. Um, but during our time in Second Peter, we've explored that issue in plenty of detail. So allow me to make a little bit of application for us here today. Matthew ten sixteen. Um, as Christians, we need to be both trusting and suspicious, okay? Um, leaders are to be protective. They're supposed to sniff out the issue. They are supposed to be good at stopping wolves. They're supposed to sniff those out that might attack the flock. Uh, speaking just personally, you, you need to have a healthy amount of skepticism when someone comes along teaching um, that you do certain things. Now, you can't be overwhelmingly impressionable. You cannot accept everything that somebody says wholesale without any consideration. You need an appropriate amount of subtlety. As, and we've talked about this in the group here. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to just want to accept everything that one person says. But somebody can be right on in nine areas and damnably off in one. And if you wholesale accept it, you'll be 90% right and 100% damned. You know what I mean? It's, you can't just accept everything blindly. Um, yet on the other hand, uh, you have to uh, you establish the trustworthiness of the people that you are 
being led by, you establish that they are indeed orthodox, then trust and listen to them. You have to. You can't be forever, forever skeptical. That's a really dark place to be is just disbelieving and cynical about life. Um, there are some people that really get there, especially in the church, and that's not what I'm advocating for. Do your research. Do your homework. Keep your eyes open. And then once you're there, trust them. And trust that they are supposed to be there and allow them to guide and protect you. Does this mean that you're going to agree on every single issue with them ever? No, absolutely not. Um, but does it mean that you cleared that they are on truth with the gospel, heaven, hell issues? Okay, great. Then be open and impressionable with them and allow them to lead you. And I would even dare say be more impressionable uh, by the elders in your local church than some random you hear online since that seems to be something our modern church struggles with. Um, I, have, I have concern that some people within this group are easily Trojan horsed, if you will. Um, and what I mean that, uh, and if I may be so blunt here, I think this tends to be more of a female issue than a male issue on, on some levels. I know, I'm sorry. And this is actually one of the main reasons why I, this actually is one of the main reasons that I think from a practical perspective that church leadership is restricted to men um, is that some teachers, um, I'll make this comment on the other one. Um, some teachers are gonna come along with something that appears nice, sounds loving, and evokes a great deal of empathetic emotion. Um, and once they have that hook sort of secured, then they introduce the false teaching that is underneath that. You know, you get the emotional play and then people aren't so critical after that. Beloved, be diligent about yourself. Learn to assess the truthfulness of a claim regardless of how emotionally appealing it might be. Um, this is not to say that we should be hard or that we should be emotionally calloused, uh, but it is to say that proper emotional care can only come in the context of truth. <clears throat> um, even within Paul, you see that uh, he was talking about uh, false teachers, uh, particularly attacking unstable women. Um, one thing that I find very interesting, Athanasius, if you read some stuff in the Trinitarian controversies um, in the 300s, um, what was the, one of the main issues? Arius, the heretic, was really, really popular among women. And so he had the, he had the persuasive abilities. And so uh, the Arian controversy really took root among women, particularly. And that's probably because Arius was a bit of a charismatic person. And so um, uh, that's the, there you go, there's the, you know, whatever, sigma or alpha, whatever the popular term for that is right now. But, um, but if, you're, if you're looking for examples of this, you don't have to look any further than some of the social justice issues that have come up here recently. Why? Because it gives the appearance of doing good for the vulnerable and the oppressed, um, which they value. And because of this, it's easy for them to gloss over the truthfulness of the claim that comes behind it. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, to put myself under the knife, um, within the resurgence of post-mill post teaching, uh, a lot of the thing that's coming out of that is theologic uh, Christian, Christian nationalism. And I can feel my draw to want to accept that position regardless of whether it's true or not, just because my bias is towards wanting that conclusion, right? And, and I think everyone has something that they value. I value that. And so I'm drawn to things more naturally than other things. And, and yet I have to check myself and say that's not a good enough reason to accept, accept something or reject something. You have to assess whether or not it's objectively true and whether or not your natural tendencies are good or bad. And so 
only then, whether it's something that would, in our evangelical circles, be considered more liberal or more conservative, uh, you got to assess the truth claim on its own, whether or not it personally appeals to your, the way you grew up and your politics. You have to assess whether or not it's true, not just your inclinational preferences. Um, but this is not just true on doctrinal issues. Um, and I think especially in Second Peter, it's also true on the moral front. If we have a desire to sin in a certain capacity, it's a whole lot easier to be uncritical of a teacher who comes along saying that it's okay for us to sin in that way. Why? Because we want to justify our sin. We want to have a plausible argument in Pauline terminology that fits our agenda. Whatever that is, it is so fun to try to find an argument that fits your agenda. Colossians 2, 4 through 5. So Paul and Peter here are both reiterating the same truth that we don't give in to lawless behavior and lose our firm standing within the gospel. But this is, this is not to say that all we should be doing is running away from false teachers. If all you're doing is running away from false teachers, you'll actually uh, probably run into other false teachers. And instead, Peter offers that we should do something different here, uh, which our fifth and final point is beloved be diligent to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. It's not enough to just run away from false teaching. Think of it like wheels on a spoke. If you run away, no matter where you run, it's, it's towards false teaching. Um, if you're so focused on running away, you won't, you'll miss the point. If you're focused on running towards the center, then you'll run into Jesus and by default avoid the false teaching. And as I typed that, I was like, wow, that sounds really poetic. What does that mean? <laughs> and so I thought about my own statement a little bit to assess what it meant. And one of the things that I've just noticed in ministries from people is that some people get so obsessed with knocking down one false teaching that they actually miss out on exalting Christ. Right? The point of knocking down false teaching and false ideology is to exalt the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not so that your life goal can have an axe to grind against Jehovah's Witness. You know, And that's fine if you have a ministry in that direction, but the ultimate point is not about Jehovah's Witness. It's about exalting our Lord and Savior. Um, but Christ has bestowed a great deal of grace on us and uh, peace as well. We are in this general state of grace and peace that we referred to earlier. Now then, it's high time that we learn about him and have a greater knowledge of him. On one hand, yes, it is true we must learn more about him in a theological sense. That is true. But here recently I had an experience that can allow me to say the other part of knowledge as well. It is essential um, to have that theologic knowledge, but it's also essential to have uh, experiential knowledge of the Lord as well. You can The theologic knowledge is true. Is it true that God is dependable and faithful? Absolutely, and you need that half of it. But you also need the other half of it. That is to say, I have experienced that the Lord is, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, is faithful and dependable. So grow in book and experiential knowledge of the Lord Jesus. As a little aside and sort of a, uh, a plug for upcoming change in format, if you will, uh, I just want to encourage you guys to be diligent. Um, beloved in our new format. Um, we want to do both of these things, practical and uh, book or theoretical, really, really well. 
We want to do both of them really, really well. On one hand, we want to learn about how we should live uh, for, for Christ through the teachings and the readings that we're going to have, but we also want you to learn how to serve Christ's body in your specific area. We are going to intentionally set up practicums. So maybe some of you, it's out of your comfort zone to be more academic-minded, if you will, and the theoretical side of it's difficult because you just, you know, it's hard to focus, hard to sit down, and hard to sludge through a book. Maybe that's difficult for you, okay? Be diligent on that side, but you're good about being practical. On the other hand, there are some of us who are uh, good on the academic side, um, but the practical side is difficult because you don't want to get out of your comfort zone. Um, but we're going to do our best to set up practical opportunities uh, for, for this. And so um, maybe you sense that God has gifted you in pastoral ministry or counseling or worship or hospitality or leadership or academics or evangelism or finances. Um, uh, would you be willing to try to be difficult or difficult, diligent um, in these? <laughs> <laughs> Trust me when I say that. I have enough people who are willing to be difficult. I don't need any help with that. Um, but would you be willing to be diligent in the difficult things? Um, like, and I know I made this comment on the worship post, but um, I, you know, some of you have musical talent. I know you do. I know you do. I hear you. I listen to you. Right? Um, I know some of you are busy and already using it. That's totally fine. My point is that use it. Use your talents in a way that puts you out of your comfort zone. Um, hopefully this is, this quinine is meant to be a little playground, right? Well, that's our point is to be a little sharpening ground for bigger play within the church. And you got to have somewhere that's a safe place to fail and to fail forward, right? Um, I can guarantee you that there has not been one moment in time where this group has produced world-class music. There will not be one point in time if everything continues as the Lord would have it, where this group will ever produce world-class music, and that's okay. We're going to have people who fail and fail forward and fail off pitch and do that with me. That's fine. Um, but, you know, we, we need to be willing to push ourselves out of our comfort zone and also not be comfortable with it being mediocre, right? We have to push for excellence. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, we're going to try to do these things, but just do something, for the love of everything, good. Pick something and do it. Um, have unusual diligent with it. Uh, we pride ourselves here on being real with one another, and I think that's a wonderful thing to have as a distinguishing characteristic. Um, but it's really easy to rest on those laurels. Um, it's really easy to grow complacent because of who you have been and the accomplishments you've already made. And being real with one another um, is not ever accomplished in just continuing to do the same things that your social group already knows that you can do and do well. Um, I think the longer you spend in a group, actually, the more likely that's to be the case because sometimes it's easy to feel locked in to a way that people perceive you. And so if you want to continue this group being real, then you're going to have to try new things that continue to push yourself out of your comfort zone like you were at the very first uh, when you were here uh, at the beginning. And so continue to be real with one another and real followers of Jesus. Um, that's wonderful. I, I am very thankful to have a group of co-laborers that I would consider family in this group. And Koinonia means fellowship. That's what it means. Um, but it's not fellowship that you just come together and hang out. It's fellowship with purpose. That's what the meaning, that's literally what the word means, is fellowship with purpose. Um, 
And it's going to take a great deal of diligence to hit higher heights than we ever have before as a group. But why do we do it? Why do we do it? Let's, let's bring it home here. Verse 18, again, look at the end of it. Um, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Um, that's the point, right? For everything that we're doing, attempting to be real, to grow in diligence, that's why. We're attempting to glorify Christ more, to make that light shine even brighter. Um, just as Danny, on the conclusion, the, the sort of summary video that he did for the love feast, he put a fellowship to eternity on the end of that video. And uh, we must keep working until the day of eternity comes. Now, some for some of us, that may mean that the day of eternity dawns when we are lowered into the grave. And in that case, we should continue working our very hardest until we are burned at the stake or put six feet underground, whatever the case may be. And then on the other hand, perhaps even yet, the Lord may choose to come in our generation. And the day of eternity may dawn in that day, in that way. And that would be wonderful too. Um, Jesus coming in his dazzling glory and where we want to be found in a diligent fellowship, whether or not we're uh, you know, working towards the grave or working until the Lord returns. But um, we must be diligent from here till then. And I, I just love that the text doesn't say the days of eternity. It's the day of eternity. And from there on out, it is day. There is no more night. It is just perpetual day from that time forward. So to summarize then, beloved, be diligent in five different ways. Uh, first, be diligent to be found pure and at peace. Uh, second, be diligent to count God's patience as a time for salvation. Third, be diligent to avoid the distortion of Scripture. Fourth, be diligent to avoid being carried away into instability. Fifth, be diligent to grow in grace of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or to say it in a different and simpler way, first, be diligent in all spheres of life generally. But more specifically, be diligent to your fellow Christians. Be diligent to unbelievers. Be diligent to the Word of God. Be diligent to yourself. And of course, be diligent to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Okay? All right. Well, thank you guys for completing another book of the Bible with us. This has been fun. It's been enjoyable. It's broadened my horizons, challenged me in different ways as you go through the Catholic epistles. Always some fun stuff in uh, the latter bit of the New Testament to work through. So I appreciate it. Uh, anyone willing to pray to close us this evening? Anyone? Anyone at all? Since I picked on women, any woman want to pray? <laughs> no. Wow. I did a good job. Okay. All right. Father, thank you so much um, just for this day as even what you provided for us. And um, I just thank you that as we are kind of in another little era of Koinonia, um, and it's the last expositional series that we'll have probably for a while, um, I, I thank you for the time that we have had together, and I pray that um, this kind of acts as a launching pad as we move into a new format uh, once again. And um, Lord, it seems like you have opened the doors for this to happen, and you've arranged um, this kind of all the stepping stones for us to move forward in this way. And so I pray that you would um, be glorified in this and that we would be um, diligent, like we talked about tonight, both in our personal lives and in moving this group forward and I just ask that everyone will do their part in terms of uh, being diligent to 
come and to be engaged and to learn um, in that this truly would become a ministry that is launching people into ministry um, for your glory and your glory alone. Um, I thank you so much for these people. I pray that we would um, have a good holiday and uh, just enjoy Christmas with our friends and our families and um, just take some time to just relish in who you are and who the God man is and what that means for our lives. And um, I just thank you so much for this group and I thank you for all that you've done for us, um, just both personally and as a group together. And I pray this in your name. Amen.